Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. Good morning to you. Oh, what confusing times we're living through, wouldn't you say? Confusing, (laughs) complicated, absolutely. Uh, Oh, by the way, before we get to the news of the day, and we will get to everything, folks, at least we'll try to get to everything in terms of Ukraine, in terms of Israel, etc. We need to note the passing of Chaim Kanievsky. It's somebody that you've spoken about on the air in the past, and you've mentioned your encounters with him. I did not realize, frankly, until his passing, uh, just how much of uh, an effect he had on so many um, um, areas of the Jewish community, meaning that uh, very often you'll you'll have people who have their quote-unquote chassidim, their following, uh, those that... um, uh, those who uh, you know uh, uh, make it a point to uh, adhere to um, um, uh, to their uh, recommendations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I did not realize, Malcolm, that there were so many people around the globe and from so many different backgrounds who relied on him and respected him the way they did. It was really remarkable, and anybody who went to his home would see the lineup of people coming in, not only kipot of every kind, but also some without, uh, or normally without, and the whether it was public officials, whether it was others, who often went quietly to to visit him uh, over the years, and I had the privilege of doing so. It's, uh, it is truly remarkable, and you saw it in the turnout. If you look carefully at the pictures, you saw the array of people who came, especially of young people. Yeah. And uh, you always uh, emphasize the importance of leadership in our community. Uh, I'm assuming this vacuum will be will be you know, the void will be filled at some point. But uh, things are never the same when leadership changes. Things tend to change. Correct. Absolutely. And each leader brings their own mark. And, you know, we we um, have seen what the absence of leadership can do, not in our community, in our country, in the world as a whole where right now you see that um, that there really is a serious lack of leadership uh, that uh, prevails. Yeah, no question about that. And then selfishly, I'm going to ask you to, uh, uh, to um, uh, help me uh, remember someone else who uh, passed away this week, and that's uh, uh, Dr. Jerry Hochbaum. And you know I say it selfishly because of what he meant to uh, my father and our family. Uh, it's no secret that he kept my father employed until the day that my father uh, passed away. I, I again, as much as I knew about his career and and living with him in this neighborhood for many years, I still was unaware of the role that he had. The complete, I was not, I was somewhat unaware of just how much of a role he had uh, in the rebuilding Jewish culture uh, in, uh, in in Eastern Europe and the world um, through the Memorial Foundation. So I know that you knew him certainly, and you know what he meant to my family. So I thought we would acknowledge his passing as well. Absolutely. He was a very unique individual. When I first came to New York, he gave me the best advice when I, when I started the Soviet Jury Conference and the, the movement um, here in New York, um, that aspect. And he, I went to see him and spent time with him. He was then at NACRAC, the National Jewish Community Relations Council umbrella organization. And he always had something wise to say. He was uh, low-key in his own approach to things. And then, of course, when he went to the Memorial Foundation, where he had a chance to to run it himself and to really put his imprimatur on it, 
it really did make a lasting difference. How many scholars he is responsible for, how much of Jewish life, the revitalization of Jewish life uh, that was done often below the radar, but in a very meaningful way. Yeah, no question about it. They didn't get the publicity that others get, but they certainly did in a very meaningful way, and our condolences to the entire extended Hachbaum family. Malcolm Holmline's with us. It's the weekly update. Is Zelensky putting unfair pressure on the Prime Minister of Israel to continue even further in support of his cause? I think that everyone is putting unfair pressure and often maligning Israel, uh, and I think uh, I would guarantee that 99.9% of the people listening to us do not know what Israel is really doing for the um, Ukrainian population in the Ukraine, on its borders, and coming to Israel. So far, I think about 18,000 people have come to Israel, uh, two-thirds of them not under the law of return, and and, and that's about 18,000 more than the U.S. has taken so far, and about 17,000 more than Great Britain. But they all sit and criticize, and then the... the um, the declarations Israel sent from the very start, a hundred tons of humanitarian relief. They have hundreds of Israelis on the borders of every kind. There are 65 doctors who went with the, and then nurses and others, with the field hospital. But it's not the only place. They're right there on the border, they have uh, set up uh, through Israel Relief and, and other uh, organizations. And the, the uh, supp- uh, supplemental uh, shipments from from Israel. In fact, they, they sent, I think, six generators. Each of them weighs five tons. And the, um, the constant flow of aid, assistance, and money, and the fact that the, the world jury has responded, especially American jury, I have to say, in such overwhelming ways, from the Jewish agency, the joint, and so many others, and if dealing with every aspect. And some individual organizations have taken on specific projects, getting medical equipment. But Israel has been super generous. I I went to the airport. I saw how they took in one plane uh, that was sponsored by uh, uh, Pastor Hagee and Christians United, but many others have sponsored these trips uh, in addition to what the government of Israel itself has put out. I can tell you that in one month, Mashab, the foreign aid agency uh, within the foreign ministry, spent their entire year's budget. And yet they're continuing to put out, sending people, uh, sending experts uh, to the different borders. And remember, it means Moldova, uh, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, Hungary. Um, and I think that it's it's such a remarkable story. I heard one of the uh, people from the foreign ministry who was working on it yesterday. I myself couldn't believe it when you re- hear this whole catalog of what Israel has done, and yet they become the target and the demands that Israel should do more, that Israel has to do more when Israel is in a unique position, and and because of that, Bennett has been able to play somewhat of a role, and, and Zelensky is encouraging him to continue to play that role. Uh, I thought his speech crossed the line when he went to, the, to speak at the Knesset, and I understand the pressures and all the things that he is under, but um, and then he backtracked a little bit on it and welcomed both Israel's interventions and um, somewhat the assistance. Mean, but, meaning, mean, what what bothered you? The comparison to the Shoah, you mean? That and and the tone. I mean, to 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 criticize Israel in that as he did right. the demands for more. You know, it, it, people say that the Iron Dome should be sent to Israel. And I'm sure you've heard this yeah. from a lot of people. <laughs> but you explained that but, to us, yeah. 
I tried to explain it last week, but there's even there's much, so much more to it. It takes a, a, over a year to set it up. It takes a year and a half to train people. It it's it's not meant for short range rockets. The ones that are being fired by Russians is for uh, a longer distance. They they um, you know the inappropriateness of it. And Israel, which only has ten, and is facing the potential onslaught of, of missiles, and had to go to Congress to get money for additional uh, replacement parts. To say that it's Israel's obligation to do that, whereas we're not putting the onus on others who have that we have the Patriot, why right. we're giving them that, why we're doing other things. It seems that it's just being singled out in unfair ways. No, I understand that, and I'm not minimizing that, but but you have to acknowledge that he, meaning Zelensky, is doing this really to everybody. I mean, the, the intense pressure that he continues to put on different countries, especially the NATO countries, um, with what he's saying and how often he's speaking and the attitude that he's con- that he's projecting, um, it, it really everybody's feeling the pressure. Now the question is, we're a month into this war, and now if he's starting to believe the pundits that are all over the media, he he now is convinced that he has a real shot to win this thing or you know end it in a way that's more positive for Ukraine than for Russia. Um, is NATO are the as they meet? Are these countries going to, I don't want to say fall for it, but are they going to give in to his demands and start shipping unlimited weapons in order for him to, again, try to win this thing? Look, I think that he, he, he nobody can deny the leadership he, he has uh, demonstrated. And uh, I wasn't singling him out for, for the criticism. It was right. just that he gave that particular speech. Right. But nobody can deny, you know, the stalwart position and how the world is so hungry for leadership. And they found in him somebody who could talk to the world. I mean, I, I spoke to him on the phone a couple of weeks ago. We Then we had a call with the whole conference. Um, I met with him numerous several times before he before this when he became president and visited the United States on different occasions um, and he you know he was very nice but you didn't see the strength of leadership that he has uh, demonstrated and you know it looks like he turned the corner but in fact if you look at the devastation that has been wrought on many of these cities it's not necessary stuff that we see until you get these helicopter pictures in the aftermath of uh, hundreds of buildings destroyed. Yeah, it looks apocalyptic. Yes, exactly. And, uh, you know, first of all, there are a lot of warnings in all of this for for Israel, for everybody to take. I think it's it's caused the revitalization of NATO, not something I think uh, Mr. Putin intended. Uh, I think the internal situation there is is deteriorating, and, and he will be more he could be more desperate for a solution or more desperate for a win uh, if he believes that the people, you know, are going to hold him to account. And eventually, if the numbers of lost soldiers is anywhere near correct, what they're saying, 15,000, maybe more uh, Russian soldiers are, have been lost or ca- captured or whatever, um, uh, this is one of the things that the Russians are very sensitive to is the body bags. And the reports are that they incinerate the bodies because they don't take them back. And the uh, so there will be some accounting on, on all of this at some point. We have any idea uh, what percentage of Russians are for the war? We have any idea what percentage of Russians support Putin? Well, the, the, in the elections, he gets the no. So that's that an indicator. Support. But the, 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 not, you're not getting real honest Gallup polls of people. That, I mean, there are 
polls that have come out that showed that half the people did not support it, others that showed that not, a much bigger percentage support it. So you can't really go uh, based on it. What we know is that there's this low tolerance level. They know that the people now, because they can't use their credit cards because of all the other impositions that this has made on their economic standing, let alone on the political isolation, which is not what the average person is concerned about, there is a, a nationalism in, in Russia, and there is they do see it, and they've built up this, this image in the, on the relationship with, um, with Ukraine. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, uh, it, it, there's nobody who can, I think, give a straight answer right now, except as the pain increases, the support will decrease. And if Putin f- could feel threatened, both, I mean, there are stories all the time coming out that uh, rich people have, have set him up or, or others, and there are, the people have been arrested for it. If you criticize it publicly, you can be arrested. And we see the exodus of people from, from Russia, including Russian Jews going to Israel. I don't know. I think that uh, as time goes by, it's possible that the Russian people could become more supportive, especially when they see the type of reaction that uh, they're getting from Ukraine, the pushback that that they're getting. I don't know. It, it might it might have an opposite effect and really energize the people uh, to support Putin and his efforts more. You know, body bags are only an issue when when people are indifferent to the cause. If they become passionate about it, then they're willing to sacrifice in order to make uh, to make progress. I'm not sure that that is correct, but I think the first part of what you said is certainly um, the, the, the nationalism is a strong trend. I mentioned that, yeah. and that you know he makes this a case for liberating the territory, that stuff that belongs to them, et cetera. That um, that appeals to to large swaths of the Russian people. I'm sure. Yeah, I hear that. All right, so a week ago. It sounded like in our conversation, we, we, I mean, we just had no idea you know, what direction Putin would go in. Uh, anything more definitive seven days later? Like, uh, it, I know predictions are difficult, but it, do we see or get any indication that we're closer to a ceasefire, closer to some type of peace agreement, closer to him you know, going in and just completely destroying the place? Like, what, Anything different about this week? Well, there's a lot of interventions and different people, Erdogan, of course, Bennett, others who are trying to play mediating roles. Uh, so far, we haven't seen uh, any real results from it. And I think what you said earlier is that, that he can't leave it appearing to have been defeated right. because that obviously could affect his own survival uh, as a leader. And I think he... Um, uh, so I, I don't see where there is a, a big shift. We saw the, this week that the sixth general or equivalent right. was killed. You know, this is going to have long-term implications uh, for him when, when so many of his precision-guided missiles don't seem to be working. And the Air Force not performing uh, well. You know, he had dominance in the sky, and yet we've seen that his planes, helicopters have been shot down, and and the uh, now the influx of material from the from Europe from elsewhere of rockets anti that can be used any aircraft etc that you know this is the more can go in a different direction and I think that my belief is that he he really thought this was going to be a knife through butter type operation like Crimea uh, and like Donbass that he would be able to quickly move in take over with this overwhelming force of 150,000 
and he's lost about at least 10% of them already. Is a Zelensky uh, capture or surrender the only option for Putin? I mean, anything short of that is a defeat for him? Like, is that how it has um, to end in his in his head? Is that how it has to end? Well, I think taking over Kiev and replacing the government, even if even if he doesn't capture him, would be the you know that's having the flagpole. Yeah, understood. But I, I would I would guess that honestly, I would I would guess his capture would just be a you know an automatic at that point if if they if they would make that. No, type unless of. he gets out. Oh yeah, I understand that if he escapes. But it doesn't look like he's going anywhere. <laughs> it doesn't look like he has any desire. No, I think and that's a, a remarkable demonstration yeah. of his part, and I think it rallied its people. And I, I think you have to give credit that people have been remarkably resilient. People uh, have volunteered, uh, people both of the Ukrainian heritage and others, to to fight, to go to the borders to work. And I think the humanitarian response, again, has been quite remarkable. Uh, what type of commitment has NATO made? What type of aid are they committing? Are they going to give unlimited weapons? What what have they decided now that the big NATO meeting's taken place? Uh, I don't know the final outcome in terms of that. There's certainly not going to be unlimited weapons. Individual countries have been making commitments. They did commit to um, defensive weapons and to uh, some to supplying some rockets, but they also talked about um, if if the um, if it goes in the wrong direction and if, if uh, chemical weapons or anything are used, that they would then respond in very significant ways. So it's really a warning to Putin more than a pledge uh, of immediate relief. Right. Understood. And uh, in, in general, is there a way to evaluate if this NATO get-together was successful or had a, you know, is, had a positive impact on all of this? You know, we're so, many of us are very uh, inclined uh, to question President Biden's leadership at this time, both in this country and as, you know, the head of the free world, so to speak, <laughs> when a meeting like this takes place. Do we know if the if the gathering led to some positive developments? Well, the very fact that it took place was considered development, a positive development, and the fact that NATO was considered on the ropes or of being more more, more marginalized, I think this has put them back in center stage and given them uh, an elevated platform again. Um, but in terms of what they reached quietly, there was a lot of bilateral talks and meetings. You know, the Japanese uh, prime minister with the, with President Biden over the North Korea's uh, new launches and, and escalation there. I think and meetings um, with various others on a bilateral basis. But the multilateral commitment is what I think was important. And now the question is: Are, are we going to prove the impotency or the relevance? Mm. of the agency overall, and will countries really rise? You know, it's already a month into this war, and we're still seeing countries for the first time starting to respond. So we will we will see. We'll, we'll learn much more about what happened uh, in, inside the discussions, and more importantly, to me, it's always what happens outside the formal meetings. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners' sponsored digital radio, around the world of web, and AlchemSiegel.com, on the AlchemSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. A couple of things about Israel before we go back to the world picture. We should mention, number one, this uh, horrific terror attack in Beersheba. Uh, in, in the category of the more things change, the more they stay the same. Now, this is somebody who, in addition to being an ISIS sympathizer, actually spent time in jail, right? He did. He was in jail, and he went before the court, and he pled 
for the court's mercy that he is a changed person and he regretted what he did and uh, he was a member of ISIS or sympathizer and clearly and then he, and he was he worked in a school he was a, I think he was a gym teacher oh, but he, he worked in a school and now you see that the the court was uh, was not told the truth what did you well first of all a terrible tragedy I mean obviously four victims and again more things you know we forget it's 2022 and we forget that still these terror attacks happen on too often a, a regular basis in Israel uh, it's not just at the height of intifadas, and it's not just when you know everyone's on complete, uh, you know, alert for these things. But uh, they happen all the time, unfortunately. Um, what do you think of the confiscation of the weapons of those who, uh, of the weapon of of the person who is responsible for actually gunning this guy down? Well, the, the, the charge the police, I think, made at the time was that he may have shot too often or that they just um, wanted to investigate it. I think it's been returned to him. Oh, really? I think. The public reaction, or the pledge to return it, uh, the public reaction has been extremely strong to it, that this guy is a hero for, for what he did intervening, and uh, I think there were two people, actually, who who, uh, right. who intervened, uh, and the members of Knesset, ministers, others, spoke out in his defense. And the other thing from Israel that I have to mention, even though I really don't want to, is the rise in cases, and I know nobody wants to hear this, I get it. Uh, can I can I can I hope? I don't want to say can I assume, but can I hope that even though there's a rise in cases, I think the number I saw was sixteen thousand, maybe or twelve thousand. Uh, can I hope that Israel is going to go in the direction of other countries and not implement lockdowns and mandates and just you know and sort of work its way and let people work their way through uh, whatever um, you know positive uh, COVID tests they have? Is that is that likely or are we? heading in a different direction, like lockdowns and mandates? I think everybody's going to be very reluctant to head into a lockdown, especially with Pesach coming. The tourism industry has been decimated, as we all know, um, and schools will be letting out. Other breeding grounds will perhaps be limited. Maybe they will impose restrictions on some of the activities, public uh, gatherings, but right now I don't think that's in the cards either. I think people really have had enough of it, and they understand the public sentiment and will not go out of their way to um, to reimpose restrictions. Malcolm, have you participated in any COVID's over uh, celebrations yet or not? No, I have not. You have not. So you're I, not I didn't ready. Know that it was over. So, you, so you're not ready. Over. You're not ready to. I don't want to say admit, but you're not ready to recognize that this thing is completely over. I think anybody who looks at the numbers, I know people both in Israel and here in the last week. Again, it's a clear uptick in the number of people who who have been uh, who are getting sick, even though very mildly in most of the cases. But um, not to be dismissed; it's not over, and people still should exercise seichel and, and uh, especially with the chagim coming to um, to be careful. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, you're you're speaking to a long COVID guy, as my audience knows. Uh, exactly. And At, I, I spoke to somebody who went to a, a wedding in Florida this, this week, and he said many people came back sick or didn't come back, uh, I mean, because they're recuperating there. But right. the, we hear it often. So people just should be careful. Uh, that's for sure. What does it mean that, uh, that the United States is offering? I, 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 just explain the headline. A uh, million dollars for those who can uh, prove that Israel has violated human rights? So this is a program 
which uh, the State Department, in which the State Department gives a grant of $987,654 for projects that include reporting human rights violations by Israel. And this clearly is for the BDS groups and those who are anti-Israel. This is coming from the State Department's Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. Uh, And this this also has practical implications because they go... They publish reports. They they malign Israel. We know that it's it's complete distortion and misrepresentations. Uh, these are these grants are are will go the the people who receive the grants then go and lobby the International Criminal Court, the UN agencies, to sanction Israel. And I think that this is and the State Department and the administration repeatedly rejected these kind of campaigns. So. This is outrageous, and I know that members of the Senate, others are, and we many have protested it. And God willing, we will we'll, we will see this uh, ended. Has the conference come out against uh, permanent daylight savings time or not? No, that's not generally an issue we would deal <laughs> I, with. I know, but there are a lot of people in the Jewish, especially Orthodox Jewish world, who are very concerned about it. So some of our members have come out and spoken about right. it. But it looks it's like not it, within our mandate. Yeah. It looks like it's going to go through, and you know, child safety is the number one priority. And I think people forget that forty years ago, when this happened, there were a lot of terrible episodes because it was so dark in the morning, and cars didn't realize that kids were walking in the street and all that stuff. So I don't know how long Absolutely. I don't know how long this is going to last, but I know that for our own interests, uh, in terms of uh, the times of uh, davening, of davening in terms of when Shabbos starts, etc., there are a lot of people who are upset. About it, the IRGC chief has threatened both the United States and Israel. Uh, what can you tell us about that? What's the news there? <laughs> He's constantly threatening uh, everybody and and everything that uh, that moves. The IRGC is is threatening because they want the sanctions removed in the talks. Iran as a whole is demanding that the sanctions against the leadership of the IRGC be removed. There's a lot of pressure, and not never enough, on the administration not to allow this to happen. This would be an absolute disaster to to remove the sanctions and to take them off the foreign terrorist organization list, which the previous administration put them on. And the uh, uh, the uh, talks, by the way, if you notice, have been stalled. I think there's a couple things. One, the Russians are demanding that they be exempted from the sanctions in their their sanctions in their dealings with Iran, meaning that they would be able to sell their oil through Iran. They could bypass the economic sanctions through the banking and everything through Iran. The uh, Iranians are demanding that the IRGC be taken off the foreign terrorist organization list and other things. Unfortunately, it looks like they got most of the other things already agreed to. Uh, and there are many who believe it's a fait accompli, and, and uh, we're, we're stuck uh, where we are. But it, it should not be the case. Uh, you know, Iran is no longer a year away, which was what the Obama-era agreement sought to, to do. The New Deal is not a stronger deal, a longer deal. It's a worse deal. It's a shorter deal. And the... Um, you know that uh, uh, when Lavrov makes the demands that he wants written guarantees to exempt the Russian-Iranian transactions, they think that they that they are holding them all up because the West wants this so badly that they are going to be able to continue just to make demands on uh, on the the uh, U.S. and 
which isn't sitting at the table, but the others that are and U.S. and representing the U.S. at the same time. So, the the we've seen that the Iranians uh, are suffering tremendous economic dislocation right now. We have the pressure on them. Khamenei gave a speech this week in which he said that solving Iran's economic problems soon is not realistic. I mean, can you imagine the guy, the, the supreme leader, saying to them, people don't expect that the, we're going to be able to turn the economy around, that um, he said, we hope that some problems can be resolved in the year ahead, but he said hardships are coming, et cetera, and, and a doubt that the economic crisis could be uh, resolved. Uh, in any time in the near future, they also see them cracking down internally over, you know, the new year there is uh, March 20th, and they uh, becomes an occasion for government, anti-government demonstrations. Uh, even Turkey came out and said that Iran is the biggest obstacle to Iraq's stability and stability in the region, uh, and the... Um, uh, the all of these things are interrelated in terms of what is happening in Vienna. That the fact is that that we are going we're, we're walking away we're going to walk away with a deal if they sign it that is not a return to the previous agreement. This is a much worse deal, not only in terms of the amounts of money that they will get, but also we know that their breakout is now maybe four weeks. And they're allowing them to put in more advanced centrifuges, and they don't have to remove them. They just have to close them, you know, uh, um, stop them. So they can reactivate this program at any time. There are many uh, aspects to this. I mean, it's a very complicated uh, deal, obviously, but it's we're headed in a very bad direction. And you see the reaction when a number of four Arab countries came out against it. You saw the meeting of Assad visiting UAE. These are all messages to the U.S. The UAE backed the opposition to Assad. The meeting in Cairo of Prime Minister Bennett, the president of Egypt, and the uh, crown prince of the UAE. This was a gathering because of Iran. They could talk about all the other topics, they said, but this was the primary thing, and it was a message. And when the prime minister says he can't believe that the United States is headed in this direction and, and uh, will accept an uh, agreement uh, of this kind. And all the time they're saying, well, Iran will agree to a de-escalation in the region, and they're saying they're not going to agree to it. So when Senators Cardin and Menendez and many others publicly criticize the republic, the removing of the IRGC, it's something. It's not just Republicans uh, who, who are, uh, uh, are saying it. And the... Uh, I know that the, uh, some of the reports or the meetings that took place in Cairo, or in Sharm el-Sheikh, actually, uh, the Palestinian issue didn't even come up. It was all about these other uh, matters, which are of primary importance to all of the parties, and the disappointment and the expectation that uh, a deal like this could be signed, and that Iran is, is going to be let off the hook with tens of billions of dollars to spend on regional destabilization. Do you think that uh, the White House is behaving this way? And boy, if this is true, it would be awful. Is it possible the White House is behaving this way because they just don't want to look Trumpian? In other words, if Trump wouldn't have canceled this deal, we'd be in a much better position right now to, to get the White House to, you know, to consider um, no deal with Iran. Uh, but Look, I think there are people who really believe in the deal and, and people in the administration. Remember, many of the people involved, including Rob Malley, who was in charge of our negotiations and I think responsible for, for this deal, were all amongst the original authors of the JCPOA. So they have 
you know, sort of a vested interest in, in reviving it, and, and some who actually believe that it, it serves some purpose, that they say, look, in the interim, Iran moved ahead with its uh, program, and, you know, that the uh, pulling out wasn't, it wasn't, um, didn't achieve the goal. But the fact is that we cut them off we, we, from the sources of funding. We, we sanctioned them uh, even more heavily, and therefore their economy is in absolute shambles. Iran needs this deal so badly, and yet we we look like we're the supplicants in this um, in this arrangement. The um, uh, and the implications regional will be uh, amazing. It will drive these countries further and further away from the U.S. You saw that it, Saudi Arabia, for instance, said that uh, they may pay uh, or have the China pay in yuan instead of the petrodollars, U.S. dollars for oil, which would have a very strong impact and the the general dissatisfaction that is being expressed it's not, it's not hidden anymore uh the united states sent patriot missiles to saudi arabia after we removed them because of the threat from the houthis but they look at it and they say where have you been till now and the you know we need these allies these are critical and the the idea that the iran deal um could go through as proposed is really uh, quite outrageous. Yeah, and it's hard to believe that uh, that all these countries, all these representatives, are meeting with the ones that you told us about, whether it's uh, Israel and Egypt, whether it's UAE and Assad, whoever it is. <laughs> but in Washington, they don't get the urgency of this. They uh, they get it. They understand. By the way, you know, Nahum, no, no, one thing that just slipped my mind before I wanted to say, you know that Russia gets $10 billion as a contract with Iran, $10 billion to expand and rehabilitate the Boucher nuclear reactor. Wow. $10 billion, and they're demanding that it be built into it, that this be uh, allowed. This is an expansion of, of the, the Boucher reactor, and we know that from the reactors uh, in the Tons and others, when they rebuilt them, they're building things the size of football fields underground. So the underground um, drone and uh, missile capacity that they have and storage facilities, Israel or somebody last week managed to take out a facility and supposedly hundreds of drones uh, were destroyed. Iran doesn't have much of an air force, but they have these drones which can carry missiles and weapons. And they have, of course, uh, expanded their missile capacity. Another thing, under the deal, they, they continue to, to test and build the ballistic missiles, which is a violation of UN Security Council resolutions, not just the JCPOA. Oh, if there's billions of dollars involved, maybe someone's being paid off to make sure that the Iran deal goes the way Iran wants it to go. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows how they're spending the money? Um, Why? Well, thank you very much, Malcolm. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and we'll speak again soon. God willing, we will talk, and uh, uh, people should stay on top of it. And if you have a chance, write your congressman against this deal and to let them know the idea that the IRGC should not be allowed um, to to withdraw and just for for Shabbos, remember, Israel this year is the ninth happiest country in the world, moved up from number 11 to number <laughs> 9. So so there's plenty to be happy about. And also in Egypt, you know, they found a huge new Geniza inside one of the Jewish cemeteries. Unfortunately, the material was confiscated right now, but hopefully we will get access to um, another Geniza, which yielded in the past uh, amazing stuff. Is Egypt also in the top 10 of happy countries, or you don't know? 
<laughs> I didn't see that they made the top ten. <laughs> but, we should, but we should be happy Israel did. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and thank you. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time, weekly update here at JMN.